searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch Please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. What's up, everybody? It's Mike, and we're back here on the Pitch Please podcast. Today, we've got Eunice from Acefa. Uh, they make it easy for pharmacists to integrate AI-driven solutions into their daily tasks. If you know me, you know I love AI, and I love talking about healthcare, so I'm very curious to learn today. But before we talk about Acefa, we're going to talk about Eunice. Eunice, welcome to the show. Maybe give everyone a quick introduction about yourself uh, and your role at Acefa. Yeah, for sure. Uh, nice chatting with you today. Uh, my name is Eunice. I'm co-founder and CEO of Acefa. We create AI infrastructure for pharmacy companies. Um, essentially, uh, my day-to-day tasks is... Uh, Talking to the outbound clients, uh, meeting new investors. Um, we essentially uh, are a pretty new company, so there's a lot to set up. Um, but I'm really glad that I have a great team. That's amazing. Me. Well, let's talk a little bit about where this journey started for you. And if we go way back to maybe school or some of your earlier jobs, did you sort of go jump straight into business and entrepreneurship or where did this journey sort of start for you since it sounds like you might even have a background in, in the pharmacy space? Yeah, for sure. I definitely do have a background in the pharmacy space. I think anything in healthcare, people are more stringent in terms of what are your qualifications, what's your background in this area. So I, I have a doctor of pharmacy degree from UBC, which is a university in Canada. And having this degree was, that's what allowed me to build more so in this space. Given that I am a younger age, there's a lot of questions, like I get a lot of questioning in terms of my credibility. So I think having this degree has been really pivotal in terms of how fast we move in this space. I've actually was working on a couple other companies since I was around 15 years old. And that was kind of how I got into entrepreneurship. So when I was 15, I self-taught myself how to do a lot of design programs. And through there, I started working with a startup that did brand management for a lot of social media personalities, as well as some Met Gala designers, fashion designers. And that's how I got my introduction into business. So when it came time to apply for university, I didn't really want to study business because I was like, oh, I'm already kind of working in this area. Do I really need a degree? Let's do something else. Let's go for five. Just like a random spin of the wheel, um, so or like bit... was there something to it? Yeah, a little bit. I will say, uh, I think the first thing I wanted to be as okay. a kid was a pediatrician, actually. But given that I come from a very traditional family, and my parents are, they care a lot about in terms of, oh, they don't want me to be stressed in the future, and doctors are notorious for having overnight shifts. They wanted me to have a more relaxed career. I went for pharmacy because there's more stable hours. But now as an entrepreneur, I would argue that my schedule is a little bit worse. So I think it kind of backfired on them with their intention here. Yeah, I, I went through six years of studying drugs. <laughs> that, that's kind of what we're going to do. And then you did a full pivot. So I think we're going to learn about that. But like yeah. <laughs> you obviously before, it's interesting because I don't think this is always the case. You actually were pretty entrepreneurial and working in the in the business space 
and then sort of like parked that to the side and decided to go down the the path of studying to become a pharmacist. Along that journey, tell us about maybe some of the businesses that you worked at or worked in or worked for yourself on that sort of solidified this notion of entrepreneurship and maybe brought you, maybe that was part of the piece that brought you back to this. What sort of stood out for you as part of that journey? For sure. Uh, So I started with the digital media side, but that actually originated from me creating art. I used a lot of these design programs to create custom pieces and that became my own business that I was selling online. Through there, I got a lot of commissions. I started working for various companies. Like I did a lot of real estate websites, a lot of branding and such for CPGs as well. From there, I moved more into e-commerce side. And then from some of my e-commerce connections, I got involved in a Amazon private equity type of company where they help other people start this conglomerate of Amazon businesses. And this is what I was doing throughout school as well. So I think when I was in school, I, I looked really busy and I think people thought I was a great student. But honestly, like my first day, my first question was, what is my minimum grade that I need? 60%. Okay. So I was that person who, who got consistently 61% uh, just to be safe. Um, but I, I definitely wasn't the best student. And I think I knew throughout my pharmacy education that this isn't really the path for me, but the knowledge that I'm gaining from this experience is really pivotal. So I always made the joke of, hey, I really can't work in pharmacy for the sake of my patients and their safety. So when I was in my last year doing my practicum at a hospital, that's actually where I came up with one of the inspirations for what Interesting. a is. Today. Okay. Well, I mean, I want to learn about that, but I... So you've always sort of been this entrepreneur and you knew you were going to come back home to entrepreneurship. You just like took this like side <laughs> side trail, if you will, along the way into pharmacy. Did you think that it was going to bring those two things back together or did that happen more by chance? It happened more by chance, honestly, because at the time I, I did most of my businesses alone or barely with the team. Like I've, I've started some nonprofits with a team that I met uh, through my university experience. However, I never really expected myself to be in the tech space or AI space and integrating pharmacy in. And it wasn't until I met my co-founder who brings that AI experience is when we came together and started ideating on this space. He brings a lot of, he's completely opposite skill set to me, which is amazing because we don't have any overlap. But because of that, we are able to think very differently and be able to find this niche where not a lot of players. It's actually a good nugget that you, you mentioned there. And I just want to park on it for a minute and learn a little bit about how you and your co-founder met and some of the things of maybe the idea came first or you started meeting and talking about problems. But this notion of very different skill sets and I think the way someone described it on one of my previous podcasts where ideally, if you can do it, to find a co-founder with very different skill sets to you, because if you have similar skill sets, well, you'll be great at bouncing ideas. You lack the ability to bring in a different perspective and you're going to have to go higher for that other skill set. So sometimes you can go further, faster with you know a very different skill set on, on the team. But maybe talk to us about how you met your co-founder. And was this chicken before the egg or egg before the chicken when it came to the the idea that became Acefa? 
Yeah, for sure. We met in a very abnormal way. Uh, I will say most founders that I met, they either met because they were like long-term friends or met through school or something. We were abnormally placed in a Petri dish, uh, which is called an accelerator. Uh, it's called Next Canada. So they essentially took 36 people from around the country and put them together in a room and said, hey, find your co-founder here. But it worked for us. I will say it didn't work for most people, but I was lucky enough to have found a match that is uh, relatively the opposite of me and also interested in the space that I'm working in. Of course, he wasn't interested in pharmacy per se, but he was looking for to create something uh, related to AI in a space with high barrier to entry. And luckily enough, pharmacy is one with very high barrier to entry. Because number one, uh, the credentials. Number two, the um, regulation and having that compliance uh, in your technology. These are large uh, factors that deter a lot of players from coming in this space. Uh, we met in, I think, January of okay, this so year. Okay, so pretty recently. So it hasn't been that long. Mm -hmm, yeah. And then we had no idea how to evaluate who would be the best co-founder at the time. So amongst the people in the accelerator, I think I talked to around half of the people. We were trying personality tests. We were trying to see like who would be a good fit. And admittedly, I think he was three-timing me at the time. So he was talking to like two other potential co-founders. But I, I kind of knew that, hey, I want this person on my team. I could see the amazing skills that he had. I could see the drive. I was like, hey, I'm going to figure out a way to steal this person and poach them for myself. So I did. <laughs> and then we actually started by building more of a chatbot product. But slowly through ideation and knowing more from his tech experience, we were able to pivot more towards the API side. Going back to what you said about co-founders, I, I agree that it's, it's definitely beneficial in terms of having to hire less, but I think hiring would be the least of our concerns, especially if you have the capital to hire out. It's more so like the interpersonal, how you work together, right? Because the number one reason, it's been studied, but the number one reason for uh, business not working out is actually co-founder disputes or issues. And if you don't have a lot of overlap in your skill set, like, for example, if you had two marketing people, they definitely have different theories on how to go about that. The, le the less uh, overlap that you have, the less debates that you have, because for us, like anything technology, I might have an opinion, but I do trust his expertise and I won't push back as hard. And then anything in terms of marketing and design, he won't push back much on me. It's a great perspective. So I think it decreases. Yeah. And it's also optimization of capital, right? Because in your company, we're 50-50 we're split. But if there, we were both, again, like we both had a tech background or we both had a marketing background, that would be too much overlap and not good use of that capital, especially since like later stage, oh, sorry about that, later stages, um, it really matters how much equity a founder holds and like if it's going to be. In yeah. Well, business. can you just, sounds like, you're, you know, you were the final winner of the co-founder match game, what? And not everyone gets placed in a Petri dish, but lots of people are trying to figure out that mm -hmm. right co-founder. What did you do to figure out who is yeah. the right fit that you think maybe worked? So in case someone else is going through this and they don't know where to start, and what were your you know strategic methods of convincing this three-timing co-founder searcher to, to come join Acefa, which wasn't called Acefa at that time? Yeah, it was not called a stuff at the time. I don't know. What if he, he listens? You might as well know. You might as well know. 
Yeah. I think at the time, I think everyone kind of has a sixth sense. So when I was talking to everyone, there were certain people I did want to partner with, but mm. then they didn't want to partner with me or they had someone else in mind or a different idea in mind. We really tried very random methods. Like there's 50 co-founder questions online that you can do with your co-founder to get an idea of what they want with a business. Um, there's personality tests, which we actually didn't do until recently. And we found out that we're the same MBTI, which is a little bit weird, um, just by coincidence. Um, I think it generally comes down to what are your values in terms of building a business. And that's something that we really, really aligned on uh, early on. So that's kind of where I got my sense. And I think they could get that sense as well, where it's like, hey, we want the same thing from this business, what our goals are. And also, I think the way that we view life and those those values are, are really important. Actually, the funny thing is, and then I think two days ago, we had a conversation talking about, oh, what do you think it would be like? What would we do the day that we finally exit? Or what would we do if it's the day that we finally fail this business? Uh, either extreme, right? And we realized that even if we exit a company or if we fail, the only thing we would do is probably just grab a beer that day. And it, it really was interesting that we both knew that that's exactly what we would do together. And whether or not we, we succeed or fail, I think just having that alignment with your co-founder is the utmost, most important part. In terms of how I was able to steal this person and convince them to join me, <laughs> I don't know. I think... As long as you take initiative and show them other people, it doesn't apply to just co-founders, just like your team in general. As long as you show other people how committed you are and um, showing that you take initiative and go above and beyond, that's enough to convince people to come on board with your vision, especially if you're a C-suite level or like someone who is running a business. That's very important in terms of motivating your team. At the time, I think we were very indecisive about what idea to go with. We were debating between what we're working on now with like self-driving robot car with a kitchen inside of it and like some translation AI service. Like There was a lot of ideas on the table, but I think the point where I was maybe I was a little bit pushy with this, but I essentially that night I surveyed like 20 people and then got some data on, hey, this is a real problem and presented it to my team the next day. And then I think that was the factor where it's like, oh, no one else really did that survey. I have this data now. We should probably I go like along it. with so it. So it was the, <laughs> the hustle and the proactiveness that, that really did go a long way. And finding a personality fit and a difference of skill sets was, was incredibly <laughs> important. Well, let's talk now about Cepha. Uh, I, I want to hear your, you know, we're on a show called the Pitch Please podcast. So we're going to have to hear your best pitch. But after that, we can definitely go into the industry and since your story is a bit unique, um, I think what might be interesting, it sounds like there's a survey, but you obviously had to pick an area to survey. So I want to learn about that. But before we do, Eunice, your best pitch, please. For sure. So I'm part of Acefa. We create AI infrastructure for pharmacy companies. So using our infrastructure, our client can create multiple agents that serve various use cases from patient-facing activities such as appointment scheduling uh, or follow-ups to industry activities such as competitor insights or compliance checking. Our goal is to streamline clinician workflows to provide more efficient care as well as increase patient adherence by improving the connection between the provider and the Interesting. Patient. And I'm very curious to even start to break down how this works. But I mean, you went... To school for pharmacy, 
and to become a pharmacist. I imagine that sparked some of the problems that you saw. But how did that make its way into Next 36? What were some of these problems that you were seeing that sort of started the snowball here, if you will? For sure. Um, I think that has a large thing to do with the timing of Next 36 as well as um, my pharmacy schooling. So in the program started around January and then January to I'd say April-ish around there is when I was in my practicum. So I was currently at a hospital in Vancouver and then that's when I was ideating with my co-founder and exploring ideas. And I always knew that navigating clinical information was really difficult because it's largely unstructured and there's 35 million uh, of these unstructured documents. Um, Because I knew this was a problem, that's kind of why we decided to go into it. But I think if I wasn't on practicum at the time in that hospital, we would have gone for a different route. Like I, I always imagined myself doing some kind of CPG product, not really in terms of healthcare or tech, number one, because I don't like health like I'm not as passionate in healthcare and number two I don't know tech it was really interesting that I'm here but I I think one of the reasons why I didn't go straight into the healthcare stream is because I I could see the people around me in my schooling and they were extremely extremely passionate about healthcare it's not that I'm not it's just that I think that other people who I was studying with could provide much better care or could So then the idea became, how can I also contribute to these patients without directly contributing to these patients? And the answer seemed to be, hey, I can make a difference in terms of technology and the the, um, software that we have in order to provide these patients more efficient care. And this might be a better use of my skills rather than me being there directly caring. Interesting. So let's talk, tell me, understand pharmacies and pharmacists. And, you know, some of the challenges they Mm -hmm. faced that you were seeing that, you know, ignited the spark around ACEFA. What what are some of the common areas or challenges that you were seeing that you thought you could make an impact against? For sure. Right now, there is around a 15% shortfall of healthcare workers to the number of patients who need care. I think one instance that stood out a lot is because I had this patient who was telling me that they had to travel four hours to see their nearest family doctor. And the issue is pharmacists at the time could not have a lot of flexibility in terms of their role. So we would have to contact the doctor for any change, even if they forgot to write like milligrams on the prescription, we would have to call them even though we know we can fill it in. And on top of that, we have years of schooling where we know the medications sometimes better than the doctors. And we know a lot of the information like oh, if they have a comorbidity or a drug interaction, what can we actually switch this to? And we're usually the last check before the patient actually receives the medication. Now, as of this year, there's new regulations allowing pharmacists to prescribe, which gives us a lot more flexibility and be able to provide better care to these patients. Because if we identify an issue, we can make that change automatically and then provide that medication uh, right away. But even then, there's still a large issue because a lot of the pharmacies I was working at I often got the highest volume pharmacies in Vancouver, and there the wait time to receive a medication can be between an hour to a day, which is a little bit ridiculous. And because of the regulations, sometimes I had a patient come in, it's like, hey, I have really bad asthma. I need uh, some medication to help me breathe. And the, the problem is like, I knew how to treat it. I knew which medication to give. 
I could not legally give it to them without myself being in trouble. So I could not help this person quite literally breathe. So there's something majorly wrong with that um, kind of system. Unfortunately, I can't necessarily change the system, but what I can do is allow these pharmacists to prescribe and work faster in order to treat these patients uh, more efficiently. Um, that was the inspiration that came to, to building SFA. And on top of that, we realized that it's not just a pharmacy-specific problem, it's also a pharma-specific problem. Pharma is the manufacturers of this medica these medications, and they provide a lot of insights into the space. But one issue with pharma is that there's really low patient adherence, most of the time because patients don't understand medications or understand how to treat their side effects or if it's a permanent side effect. And this is an issue that pharma has in terms of communicating that information to these patients that are taking these medications. So overall, there's a large barrier between healthcare professional to patient, whether it's time or understanding. And these are the two areas that we thought we could Got use it. AI So you're very specifically tackling the challenges of time and efficiency. Now, are you doing so for the, you've mentioned the patient quite a bit. Is is Acefa patient facing, clinician facing, or or both in that regard? And then soon maybe we'll talk about how it actually works. For sure, uh, it's clinician facing okay. as well as pharma facing. It's not patient facing though, and that's for a couple of reasons. We might actually go into patient facing later on, but it'd be more so providing a product to pharma that they can enable for their patients as a. I can't go too much into our plans really here, but it'd be more so to help uh, with communicating that information, but it'd be more so selling to pharma side. I don't think we would ever do B2C for a couple of reasons. And one of the major ones is because AI in healthcare is just not ready as a technology to be used autonomously in healthcare. Uh, and it won't be for a while because the expectations for accuracy like any other field, such as design, like if someone's rendering an AI portrait of themselves, that can be at like 80% accuracy and it'd be amazing. Um, but even for healthcare, if it's not at 99.9 .9 accuracy, maybe that's not even enough. Um, it can't be used autonomously. Issue is if it's facing a patient, you have to get very, very creative in terms of um, what use cases you're building out. But even for clinician facing, that's a really difficult one because you can't just create a chat GPT for clinicians and expect them to use it because myself as a clinician, I know I've never checked the references whenever I'm reading information. So, and especially since um, our workflow is so, so chaotic and busy. So that's why a lot of the health GPT apps right now are, they're kind of suffering as a company is because the technology simply isn't there. Our um, thesis is that we can build technology in a way that we have more creative solutions that force clinician interaction. And then when the technology is there, then we can create uh, solutions that are, can be used more autonomously. But until then, I don't think it will be happening for a couple months, maybe a year. Um, so we just have to find Interesting. Ways to okay. Well, well let's maybe talk about how it works then. Give us some like very real examples of, of where a CEFA fits into the, the workflows of a, let's, let's do a clinician, a, a pharmacist. I assume this is for Canadian pharmacists, U.S. pharmacists, agnostic. Okay. Or anywhere, actually, we are, we are quite international, um, especially since a lot of the pharma companies are international. Our information is not specific to one country, and it's because we built our infrastructure, um, keeping in mind that um, it has to ingest any type of information 
and be able to understand it. Um, given that uh, clinical trials are very unstructured, uh, we can't just parse that information. We also want to provide the capability of other people uploading their own guidelines or their own information, their own research documents. Like we work with a research lab that has their own structure. Our algorithm, we knew that it had to understand this. So because of this, we have been doing a lot of R&D and our algorithm is now at 91.87% accuracy for general use cases. But if it's something very specific, for example, we want it to specifically answer COVID vaccine information, then we can tailor it to more 98, 99% accuracy. But for general use case overall, it has tested this accuracy on the Canadian licensing exam for pharmacists. So this involves medical information, ethics, and laws and regulations of the country. Um, for reference, ChatGPT tested around 70%, Google Pard tested around 68 and other healthcare competitors, uh, we tested quite a few of them, um, they are around 75 to 84% accuracy. The reason there's a disparity is because a lot of them don't use grounded generation. So they have a layer of GPT in between that gets the right answer, but clearly does not reference the correct resource because it can pull something random, but still get the answer correct. Again, that's acceptable for healthcare. Um, and because they rely on paid data sets. So there's a couple companies out there that sell their data for it costs like $100,000 US per year, um, which is great for the accuracy at the moment. But then if you have a client who wants to upload their own documents, very low accuracy because it relies on that, that clear structure. So our algorithm is able to read that structure from any type of resource. Yeah. Specific use case wise, I can't okay. go into too much detail with some of them because we are yeah. in development with other companies. Uh, just to clarify, we don't provide... We don't come up with the, in most cases, we don't, okay. aren't the actual solution. We provide the AI ah. infrastructure for that solution. So there's a company that we work with who provides software to um, 29,000 pharmacists at the moment. And then they're going to be using our infrastructure in their system. So one of the tools that we're creating is to help with um, follow-ups and appointments and being able to streamline that process. Got it. So you better. actually aren't, sitting as a solution that's necessarily always bought by the pharmacist. So my understanding now is evolving. So you actually sell to people that have platforms that service pharmacists and you provide the capability. So if yeah. they are a software company that targets pharmacists, they don't have to yeah. fully bake their own AI solution. You allow a scale of AI capability and model that can support pharmacist-based scenarios and allow them to append it. I'm super simplifying this, yes. but append it to whatever they have yep. for pharmacists. <laughs> and like, what are, you don't have to name like your customer names unless you want to, but like, what are examples of these types of companies that would take advantage of this? This could be you like naming all the ones you want to work with, you know, just. <laughs> for sure. Okay. We are solely B2B. We work with companies that provide software to pharmacies, digital health platform, therapeutic side, we have customer, um, as well as pharma companies and agencies that represent the top pharma companies as well. Those are more so our demographic of customers. We are actually view ourselves more so as a software company rather than a healthcare company. And I think that's a big differentiator in terms of a lot of the people who are building in this space use themselves as a healthcare company. But the issue is with AI being so new, there's so much research coming out every single day, new updates. If you aren't a software company focusing on all these updates, 
you will eventually be replaced by the larger companies or other startups who are focusing more on Got infrastructure it. stuff. Super fascinating. It, it's interesting that you, you know, in a world to your point where people maybe are just building for the pharmacists, you took an approach that said, we're going to be a B2B solution that empowers people that already target pharmacists. And we're going to help them move into an era mm-hmm. of AI in a much simpler form with more accurate yeah. data than just a, a open AI GPT plugin to whatever they're doing. Because to your point, mm-hmm. there needs to be a higher degree of accuracy, referenceability, that sort of thing. It sounds like, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's, oh, yeah, it's very much a purple ocean. I think some people view AI as a blue ocean. However, uh, given that the technology is so new, I think Purple Ocean is the way to go in terms of- Can you describe, just in case anyone's not familiar with it, what what Purple Ocean is? Purple Ocean is a mix of Blue Ocean and Red Ocean, where you take a proven business model, but apply newer developments and find a way to innovate on top of that. So finding existing businesses, for example, is what we do. And we essentially create this new feature or this new avenue that you can build into with God, it makes total sense. Instead of building something completely like net new, you work within an existing space. Um, So you've been working on this. I mean, it sounds like you got the Petri dish in January, did some working. So Mm -hmm. how long, where's Acefa at in its journey? Um, How long have you sort of been working on this? Um, Are you live? starting to now collaborate and, and what's sort of your, your milestones to date? For sure. Uh, so we, I met my co-founder in January, but we didn't actually start the business until end of March. I like to say early April because he actually got COVID right after. So we didn't even start building the product until then. Around May is when we had a working version one. And then I started fundraising because we had some interest. But looking back, that was way too early to fundraise. We had absolutely nothing to show. The product barely worked. But we actually were able to close some investment by mid-July. And the product worked by then. (laughs) Since then, we got recruited to join Techstars Toronto. So it's another accelerator in Toronto. And then we finished that program recently. We were revenue generating starting September. And then now we are... Excited to have some new contracts coming Amazing. in early Well, uh, you know what? I want to talk about something you mentioned there, which is like, when is too early to fundraise or what were some of the things that looking back, you maybe would have changed? It obviously sounds like you were still successful in that path, but you had some realizations through it. If someone else is starting their idea and yeah. looking to fundraise, what sort of advice that you would share now, now knowing having gone through this? Yeah, for sure. Um, Looking back, I actually don't regret fundraising that early. Like at that time, we were like a one and a half, two month old company. And it's absolutely ridiculous to be fundraising at that point, given that we're younger and not like repeat founders who have exited. In that case, that would be more reasonable to fundraise that early. But it was actually really helpful because all these investors have been working in the field for so long. They understand various aspects of the business model you should be looking at. And one thing that we took away there was, hey, what is our technical defensibility? Uh, Like I said, we started as more of a GPT wrapper, like a chatbot. And that's when we uh, had the uh, revelation and understood um, some of these assumptions that we have to make as in, hey, healthcare is not ready for AI to be used autonomously. 
Then we moved away from the chatbot more into the API side. We tried no code builder side. I think we're at a stable point now where our business idea, I think we've evolved it in a way where we've thought about most of the aspects of the business model. At the time, I think we thought it was a pretty good product, but through these investors, that's how we learned, hey, we have to think about defensibility. We have to think about how will this be replaced? Oh, what are the new updates from Microsoft and Amazon that are going to um, go over what we're creating? And that's where I think that's when we started thinking about, hey, we can't build for what the technology is right now. We have to make assumptions for what are the technologies going in the future and start building for that assumed future. I think for anyone who's trying to fundraise at this point, uh, definitely have a reasonable business to, to pitch in the first place. Um, but essentially a lot of networking, getting your name out there. We got all of our interest from inbound. So we did a lot of LinkedIn posts. We went to pitch competitions. We got, I would say all of our investors, We've I've never done a single cold call before, which is really great because we had a lot of exposure from accelerators as well as LinkedIn posts. It's honestly a full-time job. Um, I think everyone will say it's a full-time job. You have to receive like 60 rejections before you get to one. Um, feeling discouragement, that's something that you have to get used to. Um, and just because one says no doesn't mean it's no forever. Just keep interacting with them, keep building off of it, and take the feedback as well. I think I've seen a lot of companies in the healthcare space who don't take the feedback that they get from pitch competitions and investors and they continue to build. And that's, if you're essentially, of course, um, you think about the business more than anyone else will. But especially if you're new to building a business, sometimes you have to take their feedback into consideration because they've seen like 10 of your company. That's actually before. a piece I'd love to get thoughts on, which maybe there's no perfect answer. But when you think about the amount of feedback mm-hmm. that you get, right? Like I, I have never been yeah. at a pitch competition where <laughs> everyone wasn't critical of the idea. It's almost their job to point out all the flaws or potential flaws. And the reality is they're not always right. Like yeah. there's, they know the industry to your point. Sometimes they don't know elements. How did you go about balancing that feedback of which things do you pivot for? Which things do you hold your ground on? Because the reality is I don't think you always get bit up beat up when you're, you're pitching, right? No one's like, that's a brilliant idea. I have no questions for you. Like, I've never seen that. So how do you sift through that and determine where and when to, to make modifications or changes? And how did you, you tackle it? Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly a skill you have to develop in terms of what feedback you take and what feedback you ignore, because good feedback can be pivotal to your business. Bad feedback can distract you from the main goal. I think evaluating where that feedback is coming from and what it's about is really important. For example, I've had investors tell me, it's like, oh, I don't think this is a big problem in pharmacy. I don't think this is a big market. That feedback I ignore. I know the space better, right? Um, But if it's something like, hey, the technical defensibility is not there, there's like 20 other companies like this, that's feedback I would take more into consideration because I know these investors, like when they're doing their due diligence, they've talked to like 10 copied companies of you. They know like what their weaknesses are, they probably are asking the question because it's like a weakness in our business. And that's actually great for us because that's that's when we get some insights into who else they're talking to as well. Once you know the space, you can kind of pick out who they're talking to. (laughs) It's super interesting. 
Uh, same thing applies for like co-founders. Again, like choosing who like has that expertise, who you should be listening to. I think one thing that's really helped us is when you have a co-founder and you're at these pitch competitions, have someone else mm-hmm. taking notes on all of the feedback. And that's something that we've done. I get very critical feedback right after any pitch I have from my co-founder. And it's funny to the point, like it's it's great between us because it's something that we've established. Like we're very direct with each other. We're very open with each other. We know any feedback is because we want to improve. But it's funny because I've, we've had other people hear the feedback that we give to each other and they're like, whoa, you guys talk to each other like that? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> you got to be clear. <laughs> so I think just... Um, a lot of reflection is needed um, whenever you you um, hear about anything. Don't just implement it right away. Um, really think about where their concerns are coming from and if that's... And I really like that tip about, you know, have someone or some way of taking notes during these pitch competitions and broader feedback sources so that you can debrief and analyze on it later so they don't get caught up in the recency. Like, oh, I heard this mm-hmm. thing. It's like, well, we heard a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Let's like evaluate it on on scale and determine what, you know, what makes it through the filter and, and yeah. what doesn't, which is which is really great advice. Um if people are interested in, in learning more, uh, and it sounds like it's a B2B audience, but I'm sure lots of people are curious, where should they be going um to to find out more? And usually with that, I find it's also helpful to to just ask. Is there anything that if someone's listening right now where they could help uh, part of whatever you're trying to achieve in the year ahead, um, what would that be? For sure. Yeah. If you want to find out more, we have a website, www.acefa.ai. Um, we don't have a public product. So that's actually something interesting that we've done. We, in the past, we've, we've made around like 13 versions of our product now. The first couple of versions were all public for use, and we actually still have some users on it. Like we we checked the other day, and we're like, oh my god, people actually use this. Why? <laughs> but our product now is very private uh, because we realized that the UX and the the way that we are doing things is part of our IP, and that's something that we don't want to reveal publicly yet. So it's more so stealth and only revealed to our current customers. But um, we do have a website that outlines some of our basic information. Um, in terms of what we're looking for, I would say just more connections in the healthcare space, specifically in the pharma, manufacturing, and these larger companies. We are looking more towards partnerships in 2024. We have a couple lined up, um, but it'll be more so focused on that. Um, Got it. And just for anyone, we'll put it in the description, but it's A-S-E-P-H-A.ai. Just don't don't throw the F in there. Uh, or you're going to get really confused. Um, this is super interesting. Actually, there, there's a piece you just talked about, which I don't think it's come up on too many of my podcasts that I would just love to noodle on for a minute or two before we sort of wrap up. But this notion of operating in stealth, can you tell us like what that is and why or why someone wouldn't, why or why not someone would do that? Yeah, for sure. So it's it's really interesting. We were, I think we're a very public company. We like we post demo videos that I guess weren't supposed to post, but it was good lead generation for us. Like it, it got a lot of reactions on LinkedIn. That's how we got a lot of our traction and got well known in Toronto. But an interesting part is that we went to some conferences and we realized that some of our competition were copying our UI 
So it was funny because uh, quite a few of them, they had the exact same filter system, the exact same resources. We've had people ask us where we're getting our information, how we're doing things, what our tech stack is. So it was just a little bit too public. At the time, it didn't really matter that much because it's like, oh yeah, anyone can build in this space. I think when the business got a bit more serious is when we made that pivot to a little bit different product, more so the API and infrastructure side. That's when we became a lot more private. So we realized that the even the layout of how we're doing things is very much so with our IP because that's a lot of research that we've done with our customers and the industry is like, hey, how do you prefer things done? How do you prefer this layout? What kind of features are upcoming? This is all research that we've done. And by making it public, we're essentially exposing the research that we've done. Even like a podcast like this, the assumptions that I'm talking about is also IP that like someone else could be taking into their business and allowing them to accelerate further. Just because um, AI space is so new, uh, I think everyone's bouncing ideas off of each other. And I am always glad to share ideas. I love sharing other people's ideas. But there are some key assumptions in our business and why we've built our business model this way. I think those ones we should keep private for now. However, we do plan to publish a lot of technical white papers in terms of research that we've done. That's cool. And I appreciate you sharing as much as you've been able to today. I I think it's just a neat concept, but it is true. Like this is a fast moving space. And so, you know, the democratization of AI takes one step. And so actually there's the, the margin of where you add value can potentially be a little bit thinner in some areas. And so it sounds like retaining that value is even more critical now than maybe in some other times before. Well, Eunice, thank you so much for joining us today on the Pitch Please podcast. I've had fun learning about this solution, about your journey from, you know, businesses to pharmacy, back to pharmacy businesses and operating in the public <laughs> eye to operating in stealth, how to, you know, course or or court, you know, your your ideal co-founder, tons of amazing thoughts along the way. But I want to make sure that you got the last word here. Any final thoughts from your side to our audience as we kind of wrap up? Yeah, I think I've, I've covered a lot in the podcast. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for having me here. And it was great chatting. And also... Amazing. Well, thank you again. Thank you, everyone who, who tuned in. Hopefully this motivated you to, you know, come build some cool stuff no matter where you, you are at, no matter what industry you're at. And thank you again for for listening in today. Have a have a great day, evening, morning, whatever you're kicking into, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Pitch Please. You've been listening to the Pitch Please podcast. Pitch Please, Pitch Please, hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. Pitch Please, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord. <laughs>